and a whole, it's like the whole Pueblo left. It's like the ref, economic refugees. There was no violent persecutor other than it's like economic drought. There's no economy in the high mountains of Oaxaca. So the entire Pueblo, one person, a family at a time, crossed the border and they've accumulated up here and they stuck together in this one camp. And they'd pick strawberries all day from dawn till about three or four in the afternoon. And with their hands just stained red, like blood red hands, hanging their laundry in the afternoons, making simple caldos and, and hot soups. I'd spend time hearing their stories and they'd tell me about their village they missed very much back home. Welcome to episode three of Depolarize. A couple notes real quick. We had a little bit of mic difficulty, nothing huge, but you'll hear a couple times where we have to switch to the backup audio source. One other thing is that we will not always talk about politics on this podcast, but with the election looming so close, we're focusing on it extra. Like our previous guests, Chris has agreed to take questions and do a follow-up short episode. So please submit those at depolarizepodcast at gmail.com or join our Facebook discussion group, the Depolarize Podcast Discussion Group on Facebook. Enjoy the episode. Okay, guys, we are here today with Chris Hoke, prison chaplain and worker amongst immigrant and ex-con communities up in Skagit County in Washington. Chris and I met at the Festival of Faith and Writing at Calvin College this past spring in 2016, realized we had a bunch of mutual friends, got some beers, have hung out a few times here in Washington because we only live an hour away from each other, and are becoming buds. So Chris, thank you for being here. We're going to be talking about immigrants and immigration, something you know quite a bit about. Why don't you give us a little short version of the work you do up in Mount Vernon and all the stuff that that touches on regarding this topic? I came up here from a very conservative Southern California suburban existence via Berkeley, California to a much more less conservative yeah. environment in Berkeley, California. So I think I, I came from both those worlds up to a very small agricultural valley here in Skagit County to work with an organization that inspired me called Tierra Nueva. It means a uh, new earth. It was founded in the mountains of Honduras, working with um, with poorest of the poor peasant farm workers and farmers in the mountains of Honduras, and then came up here to the Skagit County, working with two populations: one, the migrant farm worker community that come up from southern Mexico, from the state of Oaxaca, and oftentimes are the sole population that picks the choice strawberries, raspberries blueberries, uh, cucumbers, uh, leeks, and a lot of the kind of uh, temperate, cool weather crops here in Western Washington. Yeah. And then on the other hand, uh, Tierra Nueva is, uh, is focused on the population in Skagit County Jail as jail chaplains. We're a faith-based organization. And so those who are in jail and those who are in the migrant farmer community are the two populations that we serve. Okay, so this is basically who you spend your life with is those two populations. Yeah, right now I've, I've, I've come to spend, uh, I found my calling really more in the jail at nights, but with the kids of migrant farmworker families who grew up uh, really not wanted within this nation and scared of police and of the law and uh, experiencing 
like today we would say microaggressions or, 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 or racism, yeah. very yeah. white conservative valley who ended up for many different reasons we can get into later joining gangs. So I've really become like the gang pastor hmm. in the area, but I really see that as the intersection of incarceration and immigration. Interesting. So why don't you set the scene a little bit for us? So what I know about Skagit Valley is that a while ago, the Danish or the Dutch immigrants came and they they got this riverbed to, they dammed it so that it could become farmland. And because of it was a riverbed for millions of years, it's now one of the most mineral rich farmlands in all of America. Is that right? Yeah, at least the West Coast for sure. It's West some Coast. of the nice uh, arable soil. So that has led to an agricultural community, which also then in America leads to migrant workers. So can you set the scene? What is the sort of cultural climate of the dominant culture of, you know, the largely white culture, which Washington is largely white anyway, uh, up there in the valley? And then what is the culture like of the of the immigrant groups? Okay, so, yeah, there's there's a there's a largely white northwestern population, especially um, in, in a, a farming community. And like most places where there's not mechanized, like, um, you know, corn husking in, in, in large uh, combines, when you're dealing with delicate, high, uh, like premium fruit and produce, whether it's California, San Joaquin Valley, or up in the Northwest, when you need human hands to pick uh, fruits and vegetables in our country, oftentimes citizens Americans, that's the kind of work that we don't do. And American agriculture has survived for decades on, um, on a very easily disposable, willing to work very hard, very desperate population hmm. that often are un, undocumented families and workers who have come from other countries, normally Mexico. And so I, I, when I first came, I was spending my time equally between the jail and the camps. Uh, I spend less time with migrant farm worker populations directly now. But for three summers, I spent a lot of time in, in worker camps where um, large producers of strawberries, raspberries, blueberries, they, they to uh, try to help the very transient population that rotates back and forth in minivans between their home pueblos in Oaxaca, Mexico, and a seasonal labor in California, and then just temporary seasonal picking here in the Northwest – they create these cabins, so they create these camps, labor camps. Hmm. They're not informal. They're created by the growers, uh, rent-free. Okay. Say, hey, we, our whole operation would go belly up unless we had you temporary laborers come in and for five to six months base your entire life and existence on picking our crop out of the fields and putting it in the warehouse. So you're, So this isn't like – you're not describing sort of migrants who get across the, get across the border – sort of like shack up wherever they can. A buddy tells them they can get work, you know, it's 20 bucks a day over at this farm. This is like the growers of the fruit realizing that without these workers, they don't have a business. And so they construct free housing for them to live in for half the year while they work. Yes. Interesting. What does that say, that bare fact? How necessary are these workers to the produce companies, does it seem to you? Oh, essential. At one point a few years ago, some of the, the farm worker communities were, were striking, looking for better conditions. And to try to find local labor, no one wants to do this. Even at like minimum wage, no one wants to be on their knees 
crawling, picking strawberries by the mornings. So it's not like they're coming and stealing other people's jobs. No one will do this. So they had to go through very many uh, growers had to go through a complicated H-2A guest worker visa program to try to legally find some way to go down to uh, across the Mexican border and say, please, will some people come up? We'll give you temporary permission to pick our crops. So when the current workers were on strike, there were no Western Washingtonians to take to do the work. So they were going out of the country to replace the migrant workers who were striking with new migrant workers who would not be striking. Okay. Wow. Interesting. Okay. So tell me about the culture though of the migrant workers. Like when you were in the camps and when you spend time with these families, like, can you give us any sort of a glimpse? Obviously it's not your story to tell, but if you could just maybe give a few details that might give us a bit of a picture into what their life is like. As I spent time in, in these camps, just um, they've, they've improved over the years, but just very simple, um, just kind of dirt, mud throughout these basic uh, kind of like barrack structures with bunk beds uh, inside. Mm-hmm. I found that they were intact villages almost, especially from southern Mexico in the state of Oaxaca. I'd never heard of Oaxaca, O-A-X-A-C-A. Yeah. And it's almost entirely indigenous down there. So it's almost like if you can imagine one state in the United States of America being purely Native American. So this is an entirely indigenous state down there that has re- that resisted colonial rule and Spanish invasion. And so we've heard of like the Aztec language and empire, or maybe the, the Mayan empire and languages, right. but there's also the Triqui and the Mixteco and the Zapoteco. And just like in the United States, the indigenous populations are the ones that have suffered the greatest generational trauma, oppression, yeah. massacre, marginalization in ongoing racism. So within Mexico, they are the poorest of the poor. Within Mexico's own racism, these are the poorest ones. They are, they are shorter, they are much darker skinned, and they speak a language other than Spanish. They speak Mixteco. And there's like 25 different kinds of Mixteco. They speak a Triqui. And that's an entirely different language. These aren't dialects. These are entirely different indigenous language groups and tribes. Jeez. So these folks are the poorest of the poor within Mexico. And then as the Mexican economy has become worse and worse for reasons we can get into if it makes sense later, these are the people that are in dire straits and the most desperate to find a way to move north towards the U.S. border and risk their lives abandon their family and and, and culture and land to try to find something of an economic future to send back home and maybe build one more concrete block house for the grandmother to live in. So I'd be going through these camps, learning a largely tricky population. I I spent a lot of time with a family that was um, part of this larger tricky Pueblo and a whole, it's like the whole Pueblo left. It's like they're economic refugees. There was no violent persecutor other than it's like economic drought. There's no economy in the high mountains of Oaxaca. So their entire Pueblo, one person or family at a time, crossed the border and they've accumulated up here and they stuck together in this one camp. And they'd pick strawberries all day from dawn till about three or four in the afternoon. And with their hands just stained red, like blood red hands, hanging their laundry in the afternoons, making simple caldos and, and hot soups, I'd spend time hearing their stories. And they'd tell me about their village they missed very much back home. That sounds like the kind of experience that you can't really have and walk away unchanged. So spending time with that group of people at that point in your life 
just looking back on the camp's experience, just, you know, solo that out as a, just that particular experience. What, what's changed in your view of things having had that experience? It's hard to remember. I mean, so much has changed over the years, but uh, I was, I was so humbled to be around such poverty just right here in our own valley, these, these labor camps that were hidden just three or four miles away when you just drive off the beaten path and drive down a two-lane road bending around the beautiful long rows of raspberries, and then it looks like a mini Dachau. Um, and you've got these folks mm. walking across you know, dirt courtyards in their flip-flops to like a public shower. Um, and to, to hear them talk, miss, as they live in these barracks, miss their, their, their pueblo back home and to have them show me such hospitality. Yeah. They could have said, this is our territory, what are you doing here? It's not like I came with a program offering free clothes or something, but I was just a dorky white wannabe activist chaplain making friends and they'd invite me in and their kids would hug my knees and they'd, they'd make me soups and handmade tortillas and um, they'd ask me about my families and they remembered my name. And eventually I, I started, I traveled down to Southern Mexico and I, and I, I met up with um, family members of theirs and went through their villages that were just ghost towns. There were only tiny children's children's tiny children uh, uh stray dogs and very old people basically anyone mm-hmm. who wasn't across the border because there's there's no work there nothing okay well let's uh let's transition to a little bit of history so you have through these experiences you've had to or you've chosen to learn a lot about the history of immigration in america which is it uh a little bit of both i came learning through this organization tierna Nueva that has been a, a one of its functions, not only being chaplains and a, and a, and a hospital, hospital, hospitable presence among the alien and the, the outsider, the stranger, which is a, a biblical ethic for us as a, as a community of faith, is that one of the biggest emphases throughout Scripture is one's, the moral fiber of a community in the Bible is judged by how they receive the stranger and the foreigner and the outsider. Yeah, And it's really important to know about the Bracero program as, I mean, the history goes even further back than that about who drew the border where. But just in our last century, in World War II, as I understand it, farms had a real labor problem when we sent everyone into the great wars of, of Europe. And so for American farms to continue, not only did we rely upon some of the women to keep factories going, but we started something called the Bracero Program. And that just means like the uh, Bracero, like, like arms, like, the, we, we, like hired guns, hired arms. We made a policy so that Mexicans could come up and help us pick our, our crops. Very that similar is, to what was going on with that local produce company when the current workers were striking. It's like a larger scale thing. Yeah. Like basically us saying, we need you. We need people in Mexico to come up here. Please. Hmm. We'll pay you. And it's temporary. You're not citizens. And then we would like you to go home afterwards. But what we did is is we created a, a bi-national generation of people that came up here and that much of their economy, their home, their culture, the sense of identity were thousands of Mexican families coming up and doing American labor work. Yeah, that's that's their skill. That's their trade. And that's the economy that comes home and feeds into their villages back in Mexico. Is it specifically Mexico or is it also other countries? Uh, I'm not sure if the Brasero program included Central America. But this is the beginning of the very common relationship between the U.S. and Mexico of of migrant and farm workers. We initiated this out of our own need. Okay. 
And so it's good for us to know with, with immigration things. We're not saying, hey, we have, we're trying to keep these people out and they're, they're, they keep just invading and stealing our jobs. And they always have been, right? That's the one way of thinking of it. Right. The, the history of, of this kind of binational flow of Mexican-Americans living on both sides of the borders was initiated in a very large policy where our economy depended upon it. Wow. So I just want to, because this is a non-polarizing podcast, I, I want to note one thought that I have that comes to mind on, you could call it the conservative end, which is to say that even if, say, the United States initiated the current pattern of migrant work, that's not a sufficient argument that it should continue to do whatever it did then or that it's necessarily morally good for it to continue, which I think you would agree. Yeah, just, just to know the origins isn't doesn't solve everything. doesn't solve everything, but it is good to know the origins. And so if we are going to say, if we, if we want to make an argument of like immigration needs to stop, we should not delude ourselves that it should stop because it's some unnatural thing. It is, in fact, the way huge portions of our economy were built. And so actually, if you're going to make a conservative argument that it should stop, then part of your plan needs to be in what way can our current economy keep going? I think that's maybe the takeaway for someone who's coming from the other side of this debate. De- certainly our agricultural economy. Yeah. Um, but even our service economy, how much of our economy today still depends on there being a largely disposable, uh, vulnerable, unorganized, and willing to pay for very little yeah. uh, labor class. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I really love the scene about uh, depolarize, where neither side takes a really angry self-righteous stance and to create a straw man out of the other and to be yeah. like what fool or idiot or moral morally vacuous person would believe this well, one of the things that I, I really sympathize with when i hear people talk about immigration issues is of course it makes sense to have a desire for boundaries i teach boundaries a lot yeah um, i need to work on my own boundaries of saying hey here's a line and I want to support this line of people coming too far into my private life. I lock the door in the evenings. And I think that's a healthy and entirely natural impulse for us to say, hey, here's the line. Yeah. And we need to be able to maintain our boundaries, which is synonymous for border. So on, on that sense, I don't think there's anything inherently xenophobic or, or, or bigoted to want to, to begin the conversation about if we have borders – uh, what good are they if, if they don't work? And yeah, right. Well, actually, and I, I'd like to, I want to even do do the conservative side, for lack of a better term, one better. It's not just that borders are analogous to personal space, but even liberal social philosophers like John Rawls will say things like, you know, a liberal argument for a strong safety net is, hey, everyone in this nation is taking part in this entire process and the whole thing is reliant on everybody else. I find that argument pretty persuasive personally, but that Mm. argument assumes some sort of a national border. You can't make that argument, say, about Ethiopians, right? It's not true that the American system is is based on Ethiopians. Within Rawls's argument, the people who are living in America and working – to support certain industries, they probably would fall under that delineation. And so borders, 
borders have a philosophical value too, I'm saying, not just sort of an, an analogical value. Right. And so oftentimes when folks talk about, look, we need some kind of rule of law, we need to be able to defend our territory. And if people want to come in, they should come in the legal way. Oftentimes the first thing I would want to speak to in this conversation is the push factor, the, the, the incredible poverty hmm. in Mexico while, while people are, are, are trying and risking life and limb and yeah. taking out $12,000 loans through their relational networks to pay a coyote. It's now between eight and $12,000 to pay one person to try to cross you through the desert at night. Man. Why are they spending this much money? Yeah. How, what kind of an economic wasteland is there that's going on? And, and secondly, I'll talk about how much we need it, you know, starting with the Bracero program, that's the history of it, and how much the economy de- depends on it today. I believe that's why immigration uh, reform has not happened. This is just me personally, hmm. not because of just uh, of, of liberal defenders wanting to be nice to immigrants, but because I believe most of the business sector in America, it's the big secret that they just don't say out loud, but most people know, is that most businesses depend on undocumented labor. Hmm. If you did not, if you either gave them permission then they w- to be here, then they could organize, then they wouldn't want to do this suffering backbreaking work, and then the businesses would suffer because they'd have to pay more. Or they would just lose yeah. this expense class. So I believe there's not been immigration reform because it works perfectly for American industry. Well, one thing that I think is not very controversial uh, on either side is if you want to bring the jobs back to America, you're not going to be able to buy a T-shirt for six bucks at Walmart anymore. I mean, you just won't. It will be $15. Right. And so, I mean, that that brings brings us to the second question of not just the arrow moving across our border towards us people from other countries, largely Mexico or Central America, coming as immigrants into the United States, but that how much the United States economy has transgressed these borders going into Mexico. So now we're going to talk about NAFTA. Right. And so the history of NAFTA is that basically we, our businesses, Philips Magnavox, for instance, says, hey, I could get an even better economic deal by crossing the border as an immigrant business into Mexico. So Phillips Magzavok sets up a big warehouse in Juarez. Juarez was a small town on the other side of the Texas, of the border from Texas across from El Paso and starts setting up with many other biz, uh, companies, these huge sweatshops and factories. And that, that just pulls hundreds, thousands of families out of small, rural, localized economies, largely corn economies. And that invites them out of the woodwork, out of the mountains, to pour into the cities to get these factory jobs, which paid a little bit more than what they could make selling their corn. And so we created this huge economic boomtown by putting our businesses on their side of the line. And then as soon as we realized we could get, when I say we, I mean American corporations, we could get even cheaper sweat in China, just close down those businesses overnight and moved out. Now you've created the war as we know today, this massive town that we created and then we left and in that vacuum of an economy if people aren't just going to starve drugs like a disease moves into a wound a big social wound and now it's the the drug and violence capital of of mexico 
Um, and so NAFTA, it was our treaty of basically us saying we want to have migrant businesses and those have really hurt the economy of Mexico. And so uh, I feel like the, the conversations needs to broaden. If you're like, okay, great. If we want to strengthen our borders and say Mexican individuals needs to stay on that side of the line and not come up here, then I, f- I feel it's hypocritical if we don't also pull our businesses back and say, okay, fine, let's, uh, let's both respect this boundary. Interesting. We're going to keep our businesses here and keep your laborers there. But if your laborers come up here because our businesses have taken the economy out of your country, that that's kind of a abusive and one-sided deal. Yeah. It's really, really hard to wrap our minds around that. So here's another NAFTA story. So okay. there's, there's the, the factories of kind of means of production, physical goods like Phillips Magnavox, but corn. Now corn is something we grow in the United States. Corn was the staple of the Mexican economy and agricultural economy for a long time. Now, there's a lot of communities in the United States that don't look kindly in the idea of welfare, government handouts, government money. But the way capitalism has worked in the United States, we give millions, I don't know, maybe billions of dollars of welfare to certain agricultural economies. So corn is a welfare economy. Yeah. Corn gets huge subsidies from the United States government. So we can produce corn using federal money in a way that is so cheap. We can now take U.S. made corn, go to very poor country, Mexico. So we have immigrant corn crossing the border, arrow moving south. So not only do our factories have an arrow moving south into Mexico, but our corn goes south. We sell so much corn in Mexico that Mexicans on very poor ranches can't sell their own corn cheap enough to compete with American corn. And so we've killed their corn economy. We've undersold them. Did you know that? No, I did not know that. That's, that's pretty insane. So Mexico is one of our prime markets to sell American welfare corn. Jeez. In other words, global economy is complicated. (laughs) Yeah. Well said, well said. It's be like, if we're going to talk about immigration, it totally, I want to be sympathetic to people saying, Hey, let's tighten our borders. But unless we understand the arrows moving back and forth both ways, it, it doesn't appreciate what really tightening our borders means. Is it we're just keeping laborers out, but are we get to have immigrant global economy that goes wherever it wants? Or do we really keep our businesses here and leave laborers there? That would be a little bit more of a fair conversation in my mind. Yeah. So let's talk about the moment here. What is your understanding of Donald Trump's immigration stance versus what would have been like a classic conservative immigration stance? Cause it sounds like you think there's a difference. Well, well what we were talking about before the show, what you might be referring to, I'm not sure what a classic conservative stance is towards immigration, but I do know that if we're talking about global economy, Trump is talking about bringing jobs back home. Yeah. Which for me is, I've always thought of as kind of like a, a liberal blue collar union kind of attitude. Like, hey, you know, buy American made. Yeah. We shouldn't, we shouldn't have our corporations go manufacture stuff in China and in the Philippines and Vietnam for cheaper. Because um, that's, I would normally think that's a conservative stance because it's very free market capitalism. Hmm. Whereas bringing stuff home and keeping it here is more looking out for the laboring and labor class here in the United States. So, so yeah. Trump saying that mixes, mixes things up a little bit. And that's probably the one thing 
of Trump's platform that I would be supportive of. It's too bad that at the debate, when he was asked how he would do it, he didn't give any answers. <laughs> That's unfortunate. I'm not sure how it would work. I mean, that would yeah. be kind of putting the brakes on free market capitalism. But maybe at yeah. least he's wanting to draw a border, not just a wall against Central American or Mexican individuals wanting to cross the border, risking their lives to get a decent wage here. But him also wanting to draw a border to American companies saying, hey, don't send your jobs outside of our borders. I want to trap the businesses here so we actually have a healthy economy at home. Yeah. And, and that kind of that half of it uh, is also similar to the Bernie Sanders platform. It gets really complicated when you start thinking about Trump because so much of his rising in polls at various times was really based on these subtexts of some of his uh, campaign promises or claims, you know? And so you can tell, like, he first ratcheted up in the polls when he declared that Mexico was sending over rapists and criminals and murderers, you know, flowing mm -hmm. over the border. And in the, in his campaign ads, they show shots of like the immigrants, like climbing over a border wall, which is not for, shot between Mexico and England, uh, America. It's like from Syria or something. It's like totally taken out of context, but obviously the intention there is, your country is being overrun by immigrants. Maybe we could mm -hmm. talk to that point. Immigration is actually not up in America. In 2007 or nine, I can't remember which year, undocumented people living in our country was at 12.2 million. Mm -hmm. And now it's at 11.1 .1 million. So that was the peak. It did go up for like 15 years straight or whatever. Peaked in 09 or mm -hmm. 07 and now has gone down 10% since then. So mm -hmm. really it's going down 1% a year at the current rate. I always find myself kind of asking like if everyone who supported Trump or or just even finds his policies about the wall and immigration reasonable, if everybody knew those stats, what would that change anything? I don't know the answer to that. Part, as you've got me thinking about immigration through the lens of depolarizing most issues evolved not along partisan lines. During election season, people may want to have it be, feel that all the bad things were created by their enemy and all the good solutions have either been th are on their side, have been thwarted, or the good things uh, will be promise promised by their side. But let's look at immigration. Like you said, Im uh, immigration has gone down by an Obama administration. There's been yeah. more deportations by the Obama administration than, than most before that. Yeah. And then let's go back to one of the most conservative uh, administrations, the Reagan years. If I, I could be wrong, but I'm pretty sure during it was during the Reagan years that we had the last amnesty. And mm. so it's it just to, for both sides to cool their jets a little bit to be like, how power works isn't always along the lines of uh, party politics. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's it. I mean, it just looking at the facts and and realizing that it's not so black and white that's what we're trying to accomplish here and clinton and clinton was one who who really was a big proponent of the global economy yeah and, and globalized capitalism so it's messy yeah it's all messy when we were talking before this interview you gave me kind of footnotes for two different stories. Um, and I just thought it'd be cool to hear both of those stories from you, two very different uh, undocumented immigrants who lived in the States and what kind of came of, of their lives. 
most folks I know, even before I go into some of these individual stories, most folks that I know who are un- undocumented are just hardworking, hardworking families. Yeah. They, they certainly work a lot harder than I do. I can basically guarantee you that. They work harder than I do, um, th- which is why they're here. Americans don't want to work that hard. And we have this really nasty stereotype about, I, that I grew up hearing about Mexicans being, being lazy which is projection to the highest degree, like psychological projection. Mm. Like these folks are, are, are suffering and doing all sorts of squalor because of our kind of bourgeois preferences and, and what kind of work we do and don't want to do. So, so that said, most undocumented folks I know are, well, in the words of Richard Rodriguez, some people think is the greatest essayist and man of letters in our country, Richard Rodriguez, he says that undocumented Mexicans are more American than Americans. Hmm. because what Americans do historically is they leave home for the American dream, which is to be upwardly mobile and to give your kids something better than you can and that you can defy social class systems, that you can be mobile. That's the American dream. And you can even leave home for it. You leave Europe, you leave traditions, you go where you need to go to be an entrepreneur to start something new. He says, that's that's the American dream. And he says, current Americans are acting very European and the most American Americans we have are undocumented Mexicans. Hmm. because they're not Mexican because they left Mexico. Richard Rodriguez uses his logic. He says, they're not loyal to Mexico. They're loyal to an economic dream of prosperity. Go where you will. What's more American than that? Interesting. Yeah, that's a good point. So he says the folks that have the most red, white, and blue in their veins are the ones that are crossing our borders. If we know our own story and our own value system, they are the epitome of our value system. Wow. I deal with folks who suffer the most, who end up in jail. I work with with guys who end up in mini nations. They create their own flags. They have their own laws. They have their own law enforcement. They they find their own weapons to defend their their territory and their laws. They create their own economies. And we call them gangs. Yeah. But these are folks who have, have, have grown up with the United States as a large nation saying, we don't want you. One person that I've accompanied through uh, the, the immigration system is an example I gave you of, sure, there are, if we're going to def- be deporting folks, who do we decide? Yeah, there's, there's, there's a woman that I know who is the, the mother of a guy I worked with, and she was involved in some really bad stuff. She, she was involved in some, uh, some witchcraft. She was selling meth and, and cocaine through different food vendor outlets. She was not a happy influence on her children. Uh, in her own pain and her story. I'm not, I don't know a lot of her story of, of what kind of suffering she had gone through to bring her to such an unhealthy and self-destructive lifestyle. But her, her sons did not do well and some of them ended up in gangs. Um, and so when she eventually got uh, arrested and was in the Tacoma Detention Center, we came alongside her because we knew her and we knew some of her story. But when the judge decided to deport her, it wasn't a whole lot of griping. We're like, well, we really, yeah. we really we really can have compassion on her and love her, but there's not sure. much of a case we could say for, Hey, this person is a really um, necessary part of the community right. and people are going to suffer. Her children are going to suffer if she's deported. Um, right. Not like, even better for her kids, for her to be gone in that, in that case. It was hard to admit. Yeah. That's, that's also pretty rare. I mean, there are, you know, that, that happens with, you know, American it, citizens of course as well. But right. it's that's not most people. Yeah. That was my next point. I mean, that's why I started by saying most are just hardworking families right. whose kids are doing really well in high school. 
yeah. and, and fighting through different racist stereotypes and language barriers. They're doing amazing. Right. Um, but if you imagine but, you find someone who, you know, they really wanted a better life for themselves, but they didn't have a clear idea. And once they got into San Diego, they are obviously working for the cartels in Tijuana and like you catch them. Right. I mean, I think you send them back. Right. I mean, that's like, that's pretty common sense. Yeah. I mean, law enforcement is, I don't know if I want to say they're doing a good job, but the kind of people that Trump is referring to like rapists, killers, murderers, like these people are being caught anyway. Yeah. Those people go back anyway. Yeah. In our County jails, our state prisons, our federal prisons are all working with ICE to deport these folks. What does ICE stand for again? Immigration and Customs Enforcement. Yeah. And basically they're like immigration cops. If you if you want to say, oh, you know, with Trump as president, we'll find all those murderers. We've already found them. <laughs> right. They've committed murder already. I mean, the only way to know if they're a murderer yeah. is if they have murdered somebody and then you have cops. Through the Department of Homeland Security, ICE is working in a nearly seamless way with law enforcement. And when folks are, are arrested, apprehended for doing anything wrong, ICE is the first one to kind of filter through and be like, okay, yeah. everyone who was arrested in Skagit County today, these people don't have social security numbers that line up. We'll be picking them up at 7 a.m. Maybe you could say he'll increase funding, but it's it's already happening. Right. So it's it's what's what's unfortunate for me is when the vast majority of undocumented families – are characterized as the, as the kind of minority rapist murders right, right. that the, the, we need to have a lot more stories of, of families that are hardworking, courageous, loving, whole, full of perseverance have, have gone through great, uh, suffering and adversity because they believe in the American dream, yeah. not in the sense that they want to be white Americans, but the American dream is Richard Rodriguez talks about of just upward mobility, right. and Economic future for your kids. Well, and it's funny, too, because the statistics show that crime is lower among immigrant populations than among the standard U.S. population. Oh, yeah. I mean, one of the main things that families are doing in the camps in the evenings is all fixing each other's taillights. And I've heard some folks, unfortunately, joke about how to find undocumented folks in a community is find the one or two cars that are driving exactly the speed limit that are sitting on their turn signals. But just to say, they're, they're, the folks that are here are, are, are t- live in a, in a mild state of PTSD fear of dad going down to the corner store to pick up some groceries to bring back to the camps and him not coming home because he didn't use his turn signal. Because there's police that are looking for brown faces behind uh, minivans with dirt on them that hmm. they can't pull them over. They can't just say, hey, you're brown, or I'm going to pull you over. But they're just sitting there. They know where migrant farm workers are coming out of. And then if there's the slightest, hey, you rolled through that stop, whoop, whoop, the lights go on. They oftentimes don't know their rights. Man. Uh, and so all that to support what you're saying, that there's some of the most law-abiding families out there. Yeah, yeah. And the other thing I would want to add, if, as long as we're debunking some myths Hopefully this is depolarizing, not just trying to champion myself. <laughs> You're so liberal, dude. You got to just chill out. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but as far as not trying to demonize any any side, but just appreciating some of the nuance yeah. and, and the real stories of these people is, um, again, I could be wrong on this, but the, the feel that, hey, they're taking all the money out of our economy. Most folks that I know who are here undocumented, the, most of their employers know this. 
so they use a false social security number. So there's yeah. there's there's still all the taxes are being taken out of their checks. And so right. you've got millions of people that are filling our tax systems and filling our coffers and they can never get their tax return. They won't get that social security money because it's going to a fake number. Yeah, so I, I'm always confused when I hear the news about like, these people that are just reaping all the benefits. I'm like, whoa, 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 what benefits? I, I accompany so many of these families. They don't get L&I. They get injured. They don't, they don't, right. can they get L&I? I, But they definitely don't get a tax return. Um, but yeah. yet a, a certain percentage of all these checks of undocumented illegal people, they are filling our civic bases of money, yeah. not taking it out. So that always confuses me. Okay, you had another story of a guy you've worked with that was more hopeful than the mother who got into drug sales. Can we hear that story? Yeah, well, another population is somewhere a little in between, um, but there's millions of them now, is children who did not choose to cross the border. Yeah, were brought here as children. They were brought here as children. There's so many of these young people, and so many of them are drawn into gangs. Half the gang members I worked on with this week are undocumented, but they learned early on that, that not only did they arrive at grade school late, they're behind, they don't have any friends, they don't speak the language, um, they were picked on, kids are being ruthless to them. Even uh, documented Mexican-Americans can be just as cruel to new arrivals, and especially those from southern Mexico. So they pick on kids. Right. So these kids also learn, wait a minute, I, I grew up afraid of the police. And so I'm not safe. And I'll never be able to get a job. So why even go to school? So some of these kids end up in gangs. A lot of them are like really good kids, though. And those are the ones that are called the dreamers, or the ones who are the, the dream act, then became DACA, deferred action, and that Obama, that Obama expanded, basically for kids that are amazing American kids that came up here when they're five or six, they didn't choose to illegally cross. They've grown up American, but they weren't born here. And to not to basically give them permission to not be afraid of deportation, but to keep doing good, to keep going to high school and to go to college. Yeah. Some of our best young citizens. But there's the minority of them who get involved in, in, in some trouble. Uh, like a, a young man that I have worked with for about the last nine or ten years. He was carried across the border when he was six or seven years old was raised in a very broken home, got to know his, his dad barely after growing up with his grandparents in Mexico, in, in southern Mexico, in Oaxaca, leaving Oaxaca and learning a little bit of Spanish in an American trailer park and a little bit of English at school. So English is his third language while he's growing up in a neighborhood of a lot of gangs. So he's smart. He's, he's plucky. He survives by learning how to navigate the gangs at home in the trailer park, but he also does really well at school and speaking his third language and doing well at math. He excels by junior high at uh, wrestling. And as he gets older, he goes home from wrestling practice. Mom's working in the fields all day. Dad's uh, nowhere around. And so he needs to survive the gang life. And so by the time he gets to high school, he's a total gang member by night and a star varsity wrestler by day and gets A's in all his math classes. He's really good at math. And so he's living this kind of uh, bi-national life, bi-cultural life, and even 
you know, star jock versus gang member by night. But it all uh, went downhill one night when he was at a gang meeting and a, a shotgun went off and it, uh, it, it blew off his big toe. And he could not go to the final summer of wrestling. And so he was on crutch. He went across. He graduated still with crutches. But all summer, instead of going to the training camps to these colleges where he'd gotten scholarships, actually, uh, he just sat around and with some family members who, who drank a lot. And he was totally going to leave this narrative, leave this family story. He started uh, just drinking a lot, got involved in some trouble. Gang members came around him. His school dreams were done were shot through like the, the hole in his foot. And um, he eventually went on a, a beer run, stole some, some beers from a corner store, uh, punched the employee who tried to stop them. Eventually he was arrested, lands in jail, would have done maybe 30 to 60 days and gotten back out, but he's undocumented. So ICE was there at seven o'clock the next morning, put a hold on his uh, case. And I got to know him there in the jail while he had a Department of Homeland Security case uh, hold on his case. After this time, me visiting him as a pastor, praying with him, went down to our Tacoma detention center. And, and his girlfriend, a United States American citizen, she was a real passionate advocate for him. And that's how mm-hmm. I teach in some classes, like, love is the greatest fuel for most activism. And it was, it was just the romantic love of an 18-year-old girl, even more that, that kind of like really dragged me as a pastor. You, you got to care for this guy because I care for and so she was, I, I, she could have been a paralegal. She was so good at navigating the immigration system, Amazing. these codes, these 800 numbers waiting on the line for 20 minutes, faxing paperwork. This is in between like her homeroom class and schedule. And she's still in her senior year of high school, pulls me into this situation, helps me uh, get in touch with him, write letters, build more of a relationship with him, go to his hearing, pray at his hearing, see weird to, to us as ministers, kind of miracles happen that normally bail is not even given to guys who have gang tattoos, um, who have a, 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 a violent crime in their past. But he was not only given bail, but he was given $2,000 bail instead of a $25,000 bail because he asked for it nicely. Um, uh, and so we helped post his, his bail, long story, with the fire of deportation on his ass, uh, and yet a supportive, loving community helped he and his girlfriend, and she was pregnant, they had a child, helped them get married, which felt kind of like a risky thing. Should we help them get married? I don't know. Help them get married, help support like a, not just on paper, but be a young, vulnerable family and raise their child. Uh, while she was working a job, he couldn't work because he was undocumented, and, but helped him actually reclaim his scholarship. So actually, it's a long story, but I, I called in the admissions office of the college where he was going to go while he was in jail. And I said, for personal reasons, can we defer his defer till, till winter quarter? Uh, he some some, fam- some family reasons. Little did they know that this uh, prospective student was in jail on his way to immigration detention. So I just asked if we could defer it as the pastor. Uh, and I had him sign a form in the jail, giving me the right to speak <laughs> on his behalf. So he finally gets bailed out. And with like two days later, we're going up to the university to re-enroll for winter quarter. And we're putting out like crowdsourcing stuff with our people that pray and financially support the ministry to really rally around this guy because he can apply for FAFSA, which is another thing. We've got all these brilliant kids that are all going off to college, but they can't fill out FAFSA because they're undocumented. So we paid a full price for a semester of tuition and then another semester and then another semester. 
and he starts going through the immigration system for four or five years. She applies for her husband. We go through all these waivers saying what an amazing guy he is. We should waive the deportation on him because of what an upstanding citizen and father and husband he is. 30, 40 people, including teachers, lawyers, employers, as he then got work permission, rallied around this guy. And he became one of my best friends. So he eventually got his papers. Now he's going back to college. He's becoming an engineer in the, the Boeing's uh, aircraft manufacturing industry. He's one of my best friends. He's teaching me how to raise my own son because he had to raise his son at age 18 and up. I'm 35 and just had my first son. And he's also, um, uh, for four years, has been going back into juvenile detention as a volunteer chaplain with me, sharing his story and reaching out to other hurting kids. So you never know when you find some undocumented gang member kid that just needs to be deported, um, that when you come alongside these people, instead of ripping families apart and you let uh, churches and employers and teachers hold on to the ones that they want to hold on to, um, that these are some of the greatest assets to our community. So this young man, I think, is one of the greatest uh, inspirations and role models to migrant youth in our valley now. Wow, that is... That's a lot to take in, man. That's a crazy story and beautiful. He's my buddy. Okay, so the last thing I want to do is this kind of lightning round thing where I'm going to throw at you seven arguments from the other side of this issue. So for people who want more immigration reform or, you know, no immigration or whatever, um, yeah, yeah. In the and the purpose of this part within this podcast is, of course, to say, okay, some of these arguments are legitimate, or some version of them is legitimate, and here's why. And then he, these are the arguments I don't agree with, and here's why. Um, so, trying to build a bridge between the two sides of the question. Mm-hmm. So, I'm just going to throw them out there. You can answer as long or short as you like. Okay, argument number one: importing people who won't pay very high taxes. And then we'll still need public services as they get older is a bad financial move. I would I would be curious what services undocumented folks can benefit from Hmm. other than the enjoyment of public parks. So you're saying only if they become naturalized, then will they qualify for Medicaid and stuff like that? Yeah. Would you want them to become naturalized? I mean, would you support a path to citizenship type plan? For those who are here, uh, absolutely. Otherwise, you're creating a class that is living in, in, in greater and greater despair. And just communities in despair don't have a track record of, um, of investing the community well. Yeah. It seems like, um, seems like there is a real argument there or there's at least a real there's a financial problem that does need to be solved within that question mm-hmm. but kind of well, i would be curious just what specific uh, benefits that these folks would not be reaping that was the issue i brought up earlier that they're actually paying into the system and taking very little out as i understand it yeah so i, and so I don't I, i'm no expert but just, i wonder if the question is just not as informed yeah, I'm not sure. I think that, well, definitely if you have a path to citizenship, then you're you're naturalizing a largely poor population of people. But I think kind of going off what we said earlier, if you need a population of poor people 
to do the type of work that only a population of poor people will do, then it seems like pretty reasonable to say you need a social benefit system that acknowledges the fact that you have poorer and more wealthy populations within a country. And to simply say, not, you know, pretending that we don't have them, that doesn't really seem to be a solution. So there, there is something there, I think. There's something that has to be figured out by people who do policy and do fiscal policy. But, it, you know, if we think about that in the context of what you were talking about earlier, it isn't a black and white kind of an argument. That's my two cents. And, the more, and I could be wrong, but I'm suspicious the more I listen to what's really at stake in immigration, if questions like that really don't come from informed policymakers, but is really um, just a kind of question, a kind of a rabble-rousing question of people that are looking for a scapegoat socially to blame and get rid of. Whereas I think truly politically and economically informed conservatives, say, would know exactly why we need undocumented labor and are hoping mm. that they stay. <laughs> yeah, interesting. Yeah, that's a good question. As long, I don't know. As, long as, they're, as long as they're disposable, that's where the kind of cruel angle comes. Keep, keep them here, but keep them undocumented. Yeah. Because then they're powerless and disposable. As soon as we don't like something, we have the entire heft of federal law to th- get, get rid of them. But yeah. we don't want to get rid of everyone. We really, it really works for the nation to have millions of undocumented people here, as long as they behave and work hard for us. Yeah, that's when you phrase it that way, it, it appears very cruel. Well, this isn't very lightning round. It's another, another no, question. No, it's okay. It's quick enough. Number two, amnesty or naturalizing people who came here illegally sets a bad precedent for illegal behavior. And that makes sense. I've known folks who are both liberal, conservative advocates of, of migrant families and those who are not to say amnesty doesn't solve the, the larger problem. Like, yeah. okay, that, that is, that is possibly a merc- You could call it merciful. It could be a pragmatic way of dealing with those who are here, but unless you create a different attitude or policy towards the next folks coming, it can just create kind of cynicism about rule of law of like, yeah. well, we'll just wait 20 more years and forgive everyone that broke the law the last 20 years. I don't really have a strong opinion on amnesty. Argument number three, it's unfair to those who immigrate or emigrate here legally. That just sounds like a logical game. The folks that I know that immigrated here legally, they have the benefit of being here legally and so they get to get their tax returns. They're not afraid of, of getting arrested. They can have a DUI and still go home. Uh, that They don't live in fear of, of the police coming by or getting pulled for a ticket and being asked to step out of the car and for immigration to come by with that terrifying green diagonal band on the side of a white suburban. There could be plenty, but I don't know any folks with papers who feel that it's not fair, undocumented folks coming over. Yeah, that that sort of assumes that they are treated the same, but clearly they aren't. Anybody who, well, I guess only if you're saying immediately make all of them citizens, then there might be some unfairness. Oh, oh, oh if, if they would say amnesty is unfair. Yeah, I think so. Oh, yeah, that would make sense. I could see folks saying we spent years doing it the right way, and these folks just got kind of grandfathered into our benefits. I could see people feeling that that's unfair. Okay, argument number four. More immigrants means more opportunity for terrorists, drug dealers, and other criminals to enter the country. Sure. I mean, no more than more opportunity for hardworking families to enter the – yeah, you open the doors and different things can come in. Yeah. You just just have to acknowledge that, yes, that's possible, but you're opening the door for other things as well. Yeah. 
that are good. That would be the minority. Also, I think immigration from Mexico and Latin America, there really is no terrorist history there. I mean, it's just drugs and regular crime. Um, Okay, argument number five. Mm -hmm. The national identity and language is disappearing. I know you're not going to like this one. The great melting pot is being replaced by divisive multiculturalism. Wow. Who wrote that? I, I found it I found it on a blog. I'm not I don't know who wrote it. I mean, I, I don't want to polarize, but I, I just I just don't understand that question. It just seems like a lot of very clear attitude with not really I'm not sure what any of those terms mean. A really good movie to watch is Scorsese's Gangs of New York. Yeah. Because it takes us back to a very early moment in the American experiment where you've got one generation of immigrants who came in from say England and they've been here for 40, 50 years and they're American. I mean, yeah, you know, 50 years ago they were from Ireland and the UK, but now they're American because they've been here for a few decades and recent boat pulling up to the shores in new Amsterdam that then became New York. Some of the most recent arrivals of Irish folks. Oh man, they were the filthy scum that was undoing America. Whereas they're all immigrants. Yeah. And so it's just really clear when you see them killing each other with like, Bats and axes and poisons and guns and muskets, this total hatred of just the most recent arrivals are seen as the epitome of migrants, whereas everyone there is a migrant. And it's funny because the the folks who took themselves as total Americans, Daniel Day-Lewis walking around with this huge American cape over him, uh, they call themselves, uh, I think they use the word indigenous or native, which is darkly hilarious yeah. given that. We're the immigrants that came over and slaughtered. We, we never asked the Native Americans permission. Hey, can we come in? What are your laws for us to come in and and um, set up our our plantations and our tobacco and to to kill you all? So we're our nation founded on invasion and violence, and uh, it, it it just becomes hard to humor that attitude of we are the ones who belong, others don't. Yeah, that one's hard. Okay, we already answered argument six, which is about uh, lower-skilled jobs. We already talked about how, on your view, Americans don't want those jobs anyway. And so the final one, argument number seven, the emigration to the United States hurts the home country as much of the male population, workers, and top intellectuals often leave their country. I think that's a very sympathetic argument. I was talking about that with the founder of our organization, Yesterday, not saying we supported it, but realizing we know and care for so many families in Central America that even with the history we've discussed, that not just NAFTA, but by the way, we did the same thing in Central America called CAFTA. It makes sense with these folks in Honduras and in Guatemala are becoming more and more ravaged economies by American transnationals. They have very clear economic motives to go to the United States where the big pile of money is, where it's being vacuumed up and piled up in the United States to go there and work. And yet it really is hurting families. And that if I heard someone say, if Trump created this huge wall is xenophobic and unrealistic and fearful as that could be, man, if we think about it from a very different angle, would, if it was just totally impossible and no hope of crossing into the United States, would it force some of the best and the brightest instead of the rapists and the 
it, it flips the whole question. Instead of the, the rapists and the, the worst of the worst are coming north, some of the best of the best are coming north. And if the nations knew that the best of the best couldn't cross over, they had to figure out with their entrepreneurial creativity ways of making things work or forcing their nation to not allow that maybe say, hey, we're Hondurans. We will not allow American corn to come in here and we'll actually defend our borders against these immigrant corporations. Maybe they would stay if there wasn't an option to go north. I think it's a really interesting argument. Yeah, I, I think that's a really interesting one. And, and uh, I don't know enough about it to really parse that out. But that I think that speaks to how complicated it is. And that's probably as good a place as any to end as we try and depolarize this issue. I think that it's clear where you yeah. stand and the stories of the people that you live with are incredibly harrowing, beautiful, sorrowful. It's a complicated thing. And so that's where we always hope to end on this podcast. And look, we've ended there. So I guess we've succeeded. Thank you, Chris, so much for your time and your insight. Um, I hope to have you on in the future to talk about the prison system. But for now, we're sticking to political issues before the election. So thanks, man. Well, it's a pleasure to be on, Dan. And I don't know if I did a good job of depolarizing, but I've, I've appreciated the challenge to to handle a topic with with a, with a greater attitude of, of of mutual attention to, to to both sides of an issue and to to not uh, demonize or or, or uh, go to war in a sense to feel self righteous. It's 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 a good experiment. I, I'm grateful that you invited me into it. Well, I mean, I, I think we're all just kind of trying to practice that, right? It's it's not our, it's definitely right. not the default in America these days. It's much easier to plant your flag, feel self righteous, and say everybody else is an idiot or a bigot. And so, so thanks I'd for trying I'd with close, me. Yeah, I'd want to close now by just thanking you, Dan. But to to apologize to to viewers, if if you're listening, be like, man, this guy Chris is totally not depolarizing. He's totally taking his stand and taking a pot shot of the other. If you caught me doing that, you're probably right, and I'm I'm learning along with y'all. Yeah, we're just we're just trying. And, you know, I also asked you to talk about something that is as close to your heart as any other issue in the world. And I asked you to look at it from the other angle, which is not an easy task. So thank you. May the depolarizing continue. All right, man. Talk to you later. Thank you guys again for listening. Once again, we will be taking follow-up questions for Chris. So email them to me at depolarizedpodcast.com or join the Facebook discussion group, Depolarized Podcast Discussion Group. Also, you can find me on Twitter at Dan Koch, K-O-C-H is how you spell Coke. And then I also want to mention that we will have some show notes up at depolarizedpodcast.com, some articles linking to some of the stuff that Chris was talking about, the Bracero program, crime rates among immigrants, etc. We'll see you next week.